This is, uh, this is Labor Day weekend. Look at you. You're here. You're in church on Labor Day weekend. This is awesome. It's great to see you and really important that you're here in many regards, but we're wrapping up our series on the book of Jonah. If this is your first week here, uh, then you get to get it all here in the last week. If you've been here throughout the summer or parts of it, you've heard us talking about this great book. So let's stand together, can we? And let me just read for us the last few verses of this very interesting book in the Bible. Jonah chapter 4, 5 through 11. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And if it's at the end of a page, as it is in this Bible, you want to turn it, but that's it. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So Dallas Willard was this great Christian writer and speaker and thinker, and he died a little over a year ago, a year and a half, maybe. Maybe it's not been that long. He wrote some classic books that maybe you've heard me talk about from time to time, Um, A Divine Conspiracy, uh, Renovation of the Heart, just really uh, just kind of a master in the whole idea of Christian discipleship and spiritual formation. Just quite a man to to be around. I heard him speak uh, a few times. I actually carry around in one of my Bibles a a few photocopied pages out of uh, Renovation of the Heart. And just uh, some of the things that he was able to think about and write about were so helpful to so many influenced so many Christians and the church over the years. But one of the things that was so interesting about um, Dallas Willard is that being a Christian uh, writer and thinker and influencer in the world was really just like a side gig for him. And by day, he was a philosophy professor at this little school down in Southern California known as the University of Southern California and was just a tenured, highly respected philosopher, not just in terms of Christian philosophy, but, but beyond in, in, throughout the world, and, and was just highly thought of 
in, in this circle. Very prestigious position. Again, Willard known across the philosophical world for his brilliance and for his insight. One of my favorite stories, and maybe some of you have heard me share this, and some of you have heard it, it shared about Dallas Willard, though. One of my favorite stories about Dallas Willard was the story that's recounted of him. It, it kind of brought these two worlds to uh, a collision, actually. His spiritual formation, Christian disciplines and discipleship, and his philosophy world. One day, as the story goes, Willard was teaching in, at USC and lecturing, and was, as the class kind of came to a near end, was, was kind of verbally accosted by one of the students in the class who was basically just counteracting and contradicting everything that Willard was saying and trying to prove a point and show just how smart he was and just how dumb Willard was. And just went on and on. And as the student was speaking, the story goes that the other students in the room began to get very uncomfortable because it was very clear the more that the student spoke, the more of uh, the student's ignorance actually he was showing. And there was an awkward kind of sense because they were just waiting for like the hammer to come down from Dallas Willard, and for him to, with just a few words, end this conversation and shut this student up and put him right back where he needed to be and Willard's reputation right back where it needed to be. Well, as the the student finished his tirade, surprisingly, Willard is said to have simply looked at his watch and looked out to the class and said, thank you very much. That'll be it for today. We'll see you all next class. And walked off the lectern and and out of the classroom. And Willard was asked later on that day by another student, Dr. Willard, what were you thinking? Why didn't you, I mean, you you could have put him in his place with just a few words. What, why did you not just set things right and, and, and make your case and, Prove to us what we know is true about you. And, and Willard just simply looked at the student and he said, I was practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. Mm. What a discipline of not having to have the last word. So many of us are thinking even right now, perhaps, of a conversation that we had this week, or even this morning, where you got the last word. Or that other person got the last word, and I wanted the last word. And I don't know why I didn't get the last word. I should have got the last word. In fact, I'm going to go back and get the last word. (laughs) It's not over yet. I mean, others of you are imagining what it might look for you to be a person in a conversation, and you're particularly thinking about a conversation with a certain person in your world, a coworker or a spouse or a, a child or, or somebody like that, a neighbor who, who you always get the last word with, and you're trying to imagine right now what it would look like for you to be in a conversation and not get the last word. And some of you are having a real hard time imagining that scene right now. We're geared that way. We like to have the last word, and I am the same way. I I, uh, have to admit that, and uh, we just like to have the last word. Well, the book of Jonah ends 
with God having the last word. Appropriately. Fittingly. It's the book of Jonah, but as we've said throughout this series, it's really a book about God. It's not a book about uh, Jonah and a big fish. It's a story about Jonah and a great God. And here is God getting the last word. No doubt, as I think about this, Jonah would have loved to have had the last word. He, doesn't he just strike you as the kind of guy that would have liked the last word? In fact, I, I almost can envision God with that last question like, don't say it, you almost envision Jonah. But God gets the last word. It's God who ends this book with a question. As you look back at that, perhaps, as your Bible's open. A question that doesn't so much ask for a verbal response, like a, yeah, or, mm-hmm, right, or a, a verbal reaction like that, but as much as, it re- asks, as much as it asks for a life response. God's last word in this book is one that forces Jonah, and one that forces us, ultimately, to search our hearts and to see how they stack up against God's heart for his creation, for even ourselves. Well, I hope you've enjoyed, again, this study of the book of Jonah. It has been a, uh, a, a great study for me, and I trust for the other preachers who have helped along the way, and hopefully for you. Um, we, we've said before that this is a story about great things, and the narrator of this story has been very intentional to use that particular Hebrew word that's translated great several times throughout this text. And And you've heard me talk about this nearly every week. But we run into, in the book of Jonah, a great city, Nineveh. And uh, and we're told lots about this city throughout the book. But one thing we know for sure is that it is great. Early on in chapter 1, we're we're introduced to a great storm that comes upon the boat that Jonah is in and kind of sets this story off in a new direction then as Jonah is cast overboard, only to be swallowed up as he floats to the bottom of the sea by also described as a great fish, a great city, a great storm, a great fish. And as we've suggested, it's as if this narrator is wanting to make sure by the very words he's planting in our brains and getting into our subconscious that this is a great story, that this is a story about greatness. And ultimately, it's more than a city and a storm and a fish. It's a story about a great God. And ultimately, it's a story about God's great grace as he pursues not only Jonah but Nineveh as well. And it's a story about God's great mission that he's inviting Jonah and each of us to participate. And it's these two themes, really, that come once again to the forefront in this closing scene of the book. It's almost, well, it's not almost, it is a comic scene. And I heard the, the, the laughter, the chuckles as we read this again, and we're, we're like, really? This is, this is the story? And as we've referred to him as a ridiculous excuse for a prophet, again, we're, we're running into Jonah and his choices and his words and the way he does things. And we're learning, again, we're being reminded that as most prophets, we were supposed to learn from their message. Now we're supposed to learn from the life of this particular prophet. And as many prophets, we're, 
actually invited by God to act certain lessons out and to use kind of this physical type of illustrative um, material by the way they did things. Here, as well, Jonah is acting something out, but now it's not of his doing, it's of, of God's. It's as if we're intended to be left with a fresh memory as we move away from the book of Jonah that, that perhaps more than at any other point in the drama demonstrates to us the depth of Jonah's error and his sin and at the same time the beauty of God's purposes. Well, Jonah has moved outside the city of Nineveh now. And we can kind of trace these last steps of this, this reluctant prophet. Perhaps he had entered from the west side, moving across the city as he preached his one-sentence sermon. Do you remember it? Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. I don't know if... We really need to amen that sermon, but that's the sermon he preached, and it was perhaps the greatest evangelistic sermon in all of history, and one of the, one of the most amazing missionary endeavors in all of biblical history carries on from that one-sentence sermon, and the city of Nineveh turns and repents. Uh, but instead, interestingly, as we discover here, instead of Jonah waiting around inside the city of Nineveh to kind of see how these people would react and then also see how God would react and respond to them, perhaps having the opportunity to maybe teach a little bit more about this God to whom they had offered themselves to, perhaps staying around to take the opportunity to disciple some of these new believers, perhaps as missionaries ought to do, staying around to encourage them in their newfound faith. Instead, Jonah keeps on walking through the city and, in, and exits out through the east side. And he keeps walking a little bit to a clear uh, spot uh, away from the city where he can watch and sulk and maybe hope against hope that still God would be untrue to himself and bring wrath and judgment and destruction on this city of Nineveh like Jonah had hoped. So here he is. He builds a little booth reminiscent of the Israelites' behavior as they were wandering in the desert. A little booth, a temporary hut from where he could watch and from where he could hope. And perhaps not having lots of access to building materials. It was probably dirt and rocks that he was building up as best of a hut he could do. And evidently he wasn't much of a, an architect or a contractor because his little hut didn't have a roof. I don't know, slight oversight, but, uh, but uh, not important or not available evidently for Jonah. So no, no roof available, but as the as he waits there, sulking and pouting, the Lord is said to appoint or to provide a plant to grow up over Jonah to give him shade from the sun and literally to save him from his discomfort. It's ironic, again, this wording that the narrator would use here, that while God is at the same time saving 
bringing salvation to the city of Nineveh, he is at the same time saving Jonah from his discomfort. Just as God had earlier provided a great fish to save Jonah from drowning, here again he was taking good care of him. And we're told in another translation that Jonah was exceedingly glad about this plant. Now that's an important word to consider because it was just last week after Jonah had learned of God's offer of forgiveness to the city of Nineveh that the Bible said that Jonah was exceedingly disappointed. He was on the roller coaster of emotions himself at this point from exceeding disappointment to being exceedingly glad at the plant that God had provided for him. It appears that Jonah is fine as long as things are going well for him. It appears that we can we can discern that as long as he's being saved, then there's gladness, there's goodness, there's gratitude. But it's when others, especially those who he would suggest, who he would think of not being worthy of God's salvation or being saved, that this is not something that he takes pleasure in. The plant grows, and just as quickly, though, as the plant has come on the scene to protect Jonah, God appoints again. God provides again. God is just providing, appointing throughout the story. And this time, it's a worm to come and eat the plant so that the plant will wither and die. Now, you don't have to look very far other than my office to see what withering plants look like. Um, If it's not fake, it's dying. In my office, my wife does her very best, but I, I lose sight. There is not much more... Pathetic, sad creations than withering plants. What I do love is, it's kind of off the topic a little bit, Sean, but when you water a withering plant, if it's not yet dead, sometimes they'll like go right back to where they were. That's awesome. This one over Jonah was not coming back. It was dead and it was done. And not only does the Lord provide this worm to come and attack the plant so it withers, the story just gets worse adding insult to injury. We're told that as the plant dies and withers, the sun rose higher and stronger and beat down on Jonah's head with even more intensity. And not only that, but just to make things worse, let's add a scorching wind to come and blow across this scene as well. I mean, it's like, really? The, the irony and just the, the ups and downs, the swings of this scene are incredible. And again, speaking of swings, Jonah moves from being exceedingly glad to the point again of wishing to die. And as he states that, again, God says to him, as he had said to Jonah earlier when he got mad, do you do well to be angry? This time, do you do well to be angry? Not about me forgiving Nineveh, but about this plant dying? Do you really do well? What's interesting now is that not only are they in conversation, but Jonah is responding to God, and he says, as a matter of fact, God, I do do well. And I am angry. And have you ever noticed that sometimes when you affirm and declare your anger at something, you just get angrier? 
And it's like you agree with yourself about the fact that you're angry about something. And you, it just, you acknowledge that and it just gets stronger. Whereas if you kind of tell yourself, no, I'm not really angry. It's, it's not that bad. Sometimes it'll kind of calm down. But Jonah names it. He acknowledges it. He says, absolutely, I am angry, and I'm so angry, and I realize that I'm angry at God, so I've really got nowhere to go. I'm so angry that I could just die. Kill me now, his second death wish in about ten verses. Here is Jonah wishing to die. Um... And so God gets the last word. Let's get this straight. Let, let, just want to make sure I've got this straight. It's as if God is saying to Jonah, you pity this plant that you had nothing to do with bringing about and nothing to do with it going away necessarily, but it's gone. And so you pity the plant And you can picture Jonah nodding his head and saying, yes, I pity the plant and I pity myself at the same time. I'm just really pitying just about anything I can at this point. And God says, then shouldn't I pity Nineveh, where there are more than 120,000 people and their cattle, many more, who don't know what they're doing, don't know their right hand from the left. And again, I want to turn the page and continue the conversation. But God gets the last word with that very question. And it's been a mystery for biblical scholars throughout generations. Are we, did we lose a part? There are more here? What's the deal here? But this is. The end of the story. It's the last word. That's it. This question, shouldn't I pity Nineveh? And Jonah is left. And we are left to reflect and to ponder and to respond. Not with our words now, but with our lives. And so I've been pondering and I've been reflecting just a bit on this this week, a few things that, that we might ponder and reflect upon as we think about this closing scene and God's last word. We're left to ponder and reflect about the ways that we have sat outside the city walls. Left to ponder and reflect about some of the ways that we have moved into and then through and out of our city, our culture, the world that we live in, moving to a place where we're able to keep our distance, where we're able to be safe, where we're able to be secure, where we're able to build our little kind of Christian enclaves and even ghettos and remove ourselves from the places where God is perhaps most at work. Perhaps some of us even sitting in a place where we're looking on with judgment, looking on with criticism, looking on with hopelessness, looking on with defeat, and looking on perhaps with just a little bit of hope that, God, why don't you go in there and just clean things up? As we spoke about a little bit 
last week. We're left to consider, perhaps, even as we think about the great city of Nineveh and Jonah moving into and through it and out of it, the ways that we have, even in our history as the church of Jesus Christ, fled to the outskirts and to the suburbs and failed to enter into the heart of the cities, even of our own day, with messages of hope and redemption and possibility, guidance and of transformation. I read recently in, in a journal that comes out to pastors of the Church of the Nazarene. I'm not sure you'd want to read it, but you're welcome to. An article on our founder, several articles actually on the founder of the Church of the Nazarene. Now, we Nazarenes, we like to actually say that that was Jesus. Um, but the, the, the other founder that uh, came along a little bit later, like in the late 1800s. A guy named Phineas F. Brzee. If you, if you uh, walk out of here remembering Phineas F. Brzee's name today, you get like an extra gold star, Peter. I, I'm just telling you. This guy, it was an intriguing character, and several stories about, about Phineas F. Brzee in this, uh, in this article, in this Journal, and I had read lots of them. I knew lots about him. I had read lots about Phineas Epperzee, but there was one one um, fact in particular that emerged to me that I did not I, I did not know. He he was I think born in New York, moved to the Midwest, was in Iowa for a long time, and 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 then he moved to Los Angeles, moved out west here to to Los Angeles, and it was kind of his vision that. That uh, and his, and his sense of calling that he wanted to be in the cities and be where things were, where, where people were and where there was great need. And he came here and he pastored big uh, mainline kind of churches, Methodist churches, and, and was really successful in his pastorate and, and lots of growth and lots of acclaim, lots of notoriety. He's doing very well. But it was at a point in his career, a, a late point in his career actually, when he was 58 years old. When most, and I know some of the 58-year-olds are like, come on, don't, don't go there with me. But, but to, at a point when many, perhaps 58-year-olds, are at least looking at the last decade, perhaps, of work, of, of their career, and maybe not wrapping things up, but at least kind of starting to think about kind of slowing down, perhaps, a little bit, or kind of, I've got what I need to do, my retirement, building this and that and, and, and kind of protecting and, I don't know, at least a little bit kind of hunkering down. Brzee, at the age of 58, decides that he's going to start a new denomination and leave the security of his position and move out into the complete unknown so that he might start a church that would have as its two main focus, the living of the holy life and ministry to the poor, especially within the urban centers. As I read that, corresponding with my study of Jonah and recognition of Nineveh and and our tendency to, again, not be able to point fingers at Jonah because we are Jonah, to sidestep some of the cities. And even in our own day, as the statistics tell us that 
more and more people are leaving rural settings and moving more and more to urban settings. We as the church of Jesus Christ are left to ponder. We're left to reflect. How is it that we are moving toward the cities, toward the people, toward the urban centers where there's so much need and so much brokenness as opposed to sitting on the outskirts and looking on the inside. Now, I don't know what that actually says to us who live here in the huge city of Santa Barbara. (laughs) There is some city aspect to our place where we live. There's, There's a, without a doubt, some of the real needs Um, in Santa Barbara that are present in any urban setting. And whether that's a call to some of us to to, um, intentionally respond to some of those needs, as I know so many of us are doing already, or to go even beyond our own city to some of the other cities. Maybe there's some teenagers, maybe there's some young adults here this morning who are saying, you know, I don't necessarily get cities but I'm eager to learn. Maybe there are actually some 58-year-olds here this morning who are saying, I don't really get all those people that live stacked on top of each other and all the the multi, you name it, that's involved in the city, but I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to sacrifice. I think Jonah and God's last word leaves us to ponder these things. We're left to ponder also and reflect on the ways that we value comfort and security more than we value people. I like comfort. I just got back from vacation. And on the last day of my vacation, I was not eagerly getting into my car so I could drive back to Santa Barbara. I'm happy, without a doubt, that I got to do that. But I was enjoying the comfort of that vacation. And, and when you get a day off, you have maybe many of you tomorrow uh, Labor Day off, and you'll be able to kind of kick your feet up a little bit or do some yard work or whatever the case might be. And, and the comfort that that brings to you will be nice. And as Monday night approaches and the workday gets closer, On Tuesday, the anxiety perhaps will grow, whatever it might look like, and your comfort will decrease. And we we do all sorts of things to ensure and protect our comfort and our our security, don't we? And and many of us are like, uh, like Jonah himself, who is exceedingly glad when shade rises over us, physically or emotionally or whatever that might be, materially, so that we might be protected and be saved. And God, as he speaks to Jonah, speaks also to us, you value this. Is it not right for me to value these 120,000 in Nineveh? And we're left again to ponder. Again, I'm thinking about Brazil. 58, the security that he was leaving and the security that we could be called 
to leave, the comfort that we could be called to leave in in responding to the charge to care for God's creation, to care for people the way God demonstrates He cares for people. And the reflection that we're invited to make as we think about the exchange of our comfort for caring for people as God does. What have we made an idol? What brings us this comfort? What is it that we cling to? In God's economy, one commentator wrote it like this, people always come before comforts. People always come before projects. And the ironic thing about this is that God shows this not only in his pursuit of Nineveh, but in his consistent pursuit of Jonah himself. This is what we're left to ponder. And lastly, we're left to ponder ultimately whether we'll be about in our lives our plans and purposes, what's good for us and what brings us pleasure, or whether we'll be about God's plans and purposes about His will being done on earth as it is in heaven? Will we be about what God is trying to get done, or will we be about what we are trying to get done for ourselves? This maybe speaks to some of us in terms of our own Christian pursuit, and we've talked a lot about this, but will we be about kind of just getting our fast-track ticket to heaven Or will we be about participating with God in what his plans and what his purposes are for the world, his redeeming and beautiful plans? Jonah's heart, again, we'd like to, as we stand with this book, even at the end, we'd like to kind of, as we stand, picture ourselves standing next to Jonah, we'd like to take just one step away from him and kind of leave him there in the spotlight and say, yeah, Jonah, bad, bad job. Didn't really, you didn't do so hot here. But we have to recognize and step back to, close to him and say, actually, Jonah, we are you. We are in this with you, and everything that you have experienced, everything that you have expressed is who we are as well. Hearts that are stubborn, self-righteous, self-serving, full of pride. Not really understanding God's grace and therefore not able really to fully trust in this God. This sense that God owes me this wilted plant, I can't believe it. God's obligated to give me a comfortable life. The irony again is that Jonah, more than anybody, is the one who deserves God's judgment in the end. A good response towards God's purposes, just for our Just a hint is never to be angry, but only to love Him for it. A good response to God's grace and forgiveness is always then to become agents of His grace. But instead, Jonah continues to reject what God's doing in the world. It just doesn't add up. It just doesn't compute. And this tragic, we're left to ponder, what I'm pondering is this tragic picture of Jonah that has emerged and that is emerging even here at the end. His anger, his gracelessness has turned him into this bitter and miserable person. 
It's a picture of someone who has refused to allow the grace of God to flow in and through him. And it's a picture of what we can become as well when we refuse to be gripped by the grace of God and allow that grace to flow through us. We're left to ponder, friends, how God is inviting us to let go of our wants, to let go of our plans, to let go of our greatest purposes, our self-preservation, our comfort, and to move into self-sacrifices, to participate with God in what He's doing in the world. God never gives up on us. That's the good news. He never gives up on Jonah. This last word, while it's a bit of an indictment, is still an invitation, not for a word of response, but for a life of response. And as we come to the end of this story as well, God's inviting us. Just as he pursues Jonah, he pursues us. He's wanting, as we ponder and reflect his question, to see our hearts transformed, to see our hearts softened more and more to what he is doing, his grace and his mission in the world. He pursues fugitives. (laughs) A God who has every right, as one said, to give up on rebels like us and move on. The story of Jonah says that he does not do that. He desires to grip us with his grace. And we respond to him now. Let's stand together, can't we? God, thank you so much for this story. Again, there have been times where we have just wanted in recent weeks and particularly even here today as we witness this this man responding in ways that seem so contrary to what we know to be right and true and yet so in line with perhaps how how we have so often responded. We've sought to, we've wanted to distance ourselves, but again, we, we put ourselves right in that same picture with Jonah, right on the spot, right on the target. This story is about us, and it's about you, God. We're thankful for the demonstrations of your greatness throughout. We're, demonst- we're grateful for the way that you've demonstrated your your pursuit of Jonah throughout, never letting him go and get too far, always interacting, always engaging, always calling for a response. And we're thankful for the, the, the reality that you never give up on a single one of us. As we perhaps move in the exact opposite directions that you've called us to go, as perhaps we move a lot more slowly than you would want us to do, perhaps as we go about things in ways that we know to be in different ways that you would have us. God, you never stop reaching and extending. You never stop saving. You never stop providing. You never stop working in such a way to turn us and move us to yourself. And we're thankful for that, oh God. And we're thankful for your mission, the great mission that we have heard of again today. And the the pursuit, God, that you have not only of us, as individuals, but the pursuit that you have of your creation, God, your great desire that all things would be made new. God, that you're bringing back all of creation. You're redeeming all that you have made. You're making it new. You've sent your son, Jesus, 
to, to begin that great work. And we're thankful that we get to be a part of it as we think about your mission. And so, God, as we are struck by your heart in his words to Jonah, your, your words to Jonah, as we're struck by your compassion, your kindness, your concern, we're left to ponder. As we're struck by your last word, O oh God, we're struck to, to, to practice the discipline of not having to have the last word and instead allowing our lives to be a response to you. May we ponder the cities, O oh God. May we reflect on the places where we're grasping for our own comfort, O oh God. May we think and consider the ways in which you are inviting us to let go of the paltry plans and purposes that we have envisioned and instead participate with you in your mission and in your purposes, loving and redeeming for the world. As we ponder, God, invite us to respond with our lives. We love you. We praise you and we give you thanks now. In Jesus' name we pray.